Okay. So this week we are talking about meritocracy, how it relates to a sense of morality uh, and the challenge of change. And so we're going to talk about some like super big picture stuff. And then we're going to drill straight down to like, literally, what does this look like in a coaching conversation? What does this look like in coaching yourself, in thinking about how this applies to your real life? Um, So uh, this week, we're really going to bridge that gap between theory or ideas and concepts and practical application. So I'm hoping that that's going to be fodder for uh, great conversation and great questions and um, and maybe some some ex- live on the fly examples as well. So I wanted to start off this week uh, with an excerpt from one of the recommended readings. Um, I don't believe it was one of the starred ones. It was one of the extra ones um, in the syllabus for this week. And this is an excerpt from uh the article being diagnosed with a chronic illness taught me that health isn't a meritocracy by Kalpana Mahanti. And I wanted to start here because this isn't about work, but the relationship or the, the sort of the concepts around meritocracy and health are very similar to the language and concepts around meritocracy and work. Um, So I'll read this, but it's up on the screen too, if you want to read along. She writes, I did everything they say. This is good, good, good reading, Tara, already. I did everything they said I was supposed to. I ate my vegetables, did yoga, and drank enough water. Girls like that don't get a chronic illness or become disabled, right? Wrong. Women have been conditioned to believe both that our bodies are our self-worth and that our bodies are under our own control. As wellness culture would have us believe, health is a meritocracy in which fueling your body and detoxing and holding crystals can rocket you to the top. It is this idea that rankles so deeply for someone with a chronic illness that has manifested as a disability. What the wellness community does not seem to understand is that for many women, their health and their bodies are outside the realm of their own control, and that's okay. So the whole article is great. It's a it's a pretty short one, as some of the <laughs> recommended readings go that um, I linked to for you. Um, but kind of starting with this excerpt, I'm curious what words or phrases stand out to you. Um, are there is there anything there that you're like, oh, I feel that? Yes, that's me. Maybe it's just words or phrases that um, feel like they're extra weighty for you. Julie says relates to aging as well. Absolutely. Nyla, was that a hand? No. Yeah, sorry. As, and a bite of banana. Sorry. Um, <laughs> okay. I did not expect. Yeah. Well, I um this idea of I did everything I was supposed to. Now, I know she's talking about health. I happen to have chronic illness, so it's pretty like close to the heart here. But I hear this around work a lot. Like I did all the things I was supposed to do. I went to the right schools. I got the degrees. I took the job with the brand name company. Like a lot of the the proposal I'm writing on is a lot about the kind of disillusionment when we have played all the cards right and still don't have the experience of work that we want. So that right away strikes me hard. 
Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. really echoes, I think, a lot of what you all shared in your introductions last week to a bunch of people said, you know, I did everything that I was supposed to, or I'm trying to to walk back that story. So yeah, that makes sense. Julie? Yeah, I mean, it's super ironic, too, because also as an overachiever who also has a chronic illness, like on some level, sure, I did what I was supposed to do. But the things I was supposed to do are literally the things that maybe cause my chronic illness, right? Because I have ulcerative colitis, which is stress related. And, and I'm really good at stressing myself out. So, um, you know, I, it's just interesting that the supposed to is also the, the thing that might be hurting us. Is yeah, uh, 100%. Absolutely. Uh, Ash added, um, manifested as a disability. I want to dive into my relationship with the word manifesting more and why this is such a buzzword. It was interesting, again, linking to when improving ourselves to death and the secret. Yeah. Jamie. Um, the, the control thing. Oh, first I want to say, Julie, I also have ulcerative colitis. Yay. Fun times. Um, and the control part, I think is interesting. Yeah. Cause the sudden realization that you're not in control of your body, which I think actually, I mean, you don't have to chronic, have a chronic illness. And I think women probably experience this, especially anyways, when we like go through puberty and our emotions are like going nuts or the, the other um, transition that um, uh, menopause and all that, when again, like things and it's just not in your control. And in a culture, including a work culture where everything is like per about personal responsibility and everything is supposed to be, you just work harder and you get ahead or, you know, you, you fuel your body correctly and you're healthy. And then obviously the flip side of that is that if you don't, if something goes wrong, it's your fault, right? And it's a, being a, about fault and um, which makes it understandable why as women, we hide those. We don't talk about those things as much because oh, something's wrong. Um, cause we're supposed to be able to control all this, control our emotions, pick the thing. So yeah, that control piece. And then, and I also like, I feel like in coaching too, one of the things I talk to people a lot about is like, what's under your control and what isn't within your control, because mm -hmm. it's so important. It's so important for our mental health to understand that. <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. Control was the, the word that really stood out to me in this as well. Um, and I think it's, it, we have this experience of, um, you know, what you were kind of saying was toward the idea of self-control and like what kind of control can we have over ourselves. But I also think uh, there's this element of external controlling, right? That by uh, convincing us of self that self-control is a virtue by convincing us of, you know, this idea that we if we do everything we're supposed to do, um, and that's something that we put on ourselves, but it actually is coming from somewhere, right? And it serves a greater purpose and it there it's it's uh, reproducing power structures and social order as they are. And we'll talk more about that as we go, not just this week, but in coming weeks as well. Yeah. And Rachel says also yeah. how much we self-monitor time and energy. Sorry, Rachel, go ahead. Yeah, no. And I can't remember which book it was in, but it was... Um, it just and it did say that women do this more than men although i do know men that do this as well where it's like how do i look from this angle should i and even especially when 
you know, pandemic, Zoom, blah, blah, blah. Like I've got into the habit. Like I do not, I hide myself view for every meeting because too often I find myself like, what's the light like? How do I look? And should I turn this way a little bit or that way? And at first it was even really odd not to have myself view. Um, but we don't have that in normal interactions. So it just, but yeah, just that whole, like how much time and energy we spend on self-monitoring was something interesting that, that I, I learned about over the years. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be a big subject for next week when we talk about managerialism and surveillance and specifically self-surveillance and internalized managerialism. So yes, very pertinent to this week, very pertinent to next week as well. Um, Yeah. Anything else that we haven't touched on that stood out to you all? Either if you want to throw it in the chat or uh, speak up. All right. Well, let's uh, pick up on exactly where Nyla teed us up for, which is this idea of I did everything I was supposed to do. Um, We have all heard this. We've all heard it come out of our own mouths. We've all heard it come out of our clients' mouths or our our team members' mouths or, you know, who our family's mouths, right? It's this very common conditioning that there are a set of things that we're supposed to do, right? A set of prescribed actions. And that if we follow those prescribed actions, then we'll get something out of it, right? At the very least, some level of comfort and stability and security. And ideally, if we're good enough and we do what we're supposed to do well enough, we'll rise to the top of the social order. Um, and meritocracy, this concept of, you know, if you work hard enough and you're smart enough and you're talented enough, then you're going to be on top of the social order is really predicated on that set of prescribed actions. So whether it's going to college or it's, you know, acing the SAT or it's getting the top internship or it's, you know, developing your relationship with a mentor or a boss or a coach in exactly the right way. You know, we have this idea, this menu of actions that we're not supposed to just choose from, but really check, you know, it's not a menu, it's more like a checklist, right? It's all of the things that we're supposed to do. And the truth is, this is a really attractive belief system, right? There's a reason this is so ingrained in how we think about work and society in general. Um it's because it provides some measure of certainty, right? Or it provides some measure of direction. And we are people that crave direction. We're people that crave instructions. We're people who crave a manual for living and working, right? Like that's why the self-help industry is as big as it is. That's why the career coaching industry is as big as it is. We want someone to just tell us what to do, right? And so meritocracy really steps into that hole and gives us that prescribed set of actions that we're supposed to be able to follow and get this end result. And we learn that extremely early. Um, We learn it, I mean, probably before we even go to kindergarten, right? It's something that pops up in some of our earliest interactions with family and society. And then it keeps being reinforced over and over through our lifetimes. So 
Uh, I think Jamie mentioned this, that there's always this flip side to the belief in meritocracy, which is, you know, we like to think about it saying anyone who works hard enough and is good enough, smart enough, talented enough, whatever, can succeed or at the least get that level of comfort and security. But the dark underbelly of meritocracy is that it is also a justification for those who have less, for those who are in poverty, for those who just are frustrated and haven't, you know, made of themselves what they wish wish they could have or what they thought they were supposed to. Um, and so as that uh that kind of social order spreads itself out and we get the elites at the top who supposedly are the hardworking, the skilled, the intelligent, the worthy, the deserving. We also get this large mass at the bottom of the social order whom we can write off as lazy, unskilled, unintelligent, unworthy, undeserving. And these, this is a story that we not only see like in sort of in the classroom or at work, but it's a media narrative that plays out over and over again. It's a political narrative that plays out over and over again. And again, we might prefer to see all of the ways that we could rise up that social order, but even when we're not consciously acknowledging it, the fear of the of ending up at the bottom and having those kinds of labels applied to us keeps us under control. So I mentioned control earlier as being uh, something that happens to us as well, right? That this is a system of control. And that's one of the ways that happens is if you're being threatened tacitly, implicitly, with labels like lazy, unskilled, intelligent, unworthy, undeserving, well, then your action is going to change to avoid those labels, even if those labels might very well be unavoidable through no fault of your own, right? Because no one deserves to be said about, you know, any of those words don't, no one deserves to be uh, uh, those labels put on them. And I wanted to introduce sort of the idea of morality in here as well, because uh, especially piggybacking off of last week when we talked about workism as sort of this religious concept or just work as your worldview in general, when we think about morality, it's really this understanding of what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's inbounds and what's out of bounds. And we, you know, meritocracy is one way of expressing uh, a sort of moral framework that we have as a society, right? Hard work is better than less work. Skill is better than less skill. Intelligence is better than less intelligence, right? Um, more wealth is better than less wealth. And so we have this idea of, you know, these these markers of moral integrity, that also come along with the promises of if you do what you're supposed to do, then you can you can get to the top and then you can you can have those those trappings of living a moral life or working a moral life. Um, and same thing on the bottom of that is this implication that you're not a good person or that you're not uh, your actions are somehow immoral if they are opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. 
So in that way, meritocracy really justifies this existing social order and existing hierarchy. It's a way of thinking about what is the correct order of people. So um, one of the reasons that meritocracy is so attractive is because it allows us to, to internally to justify the social order. And so this there's this concept um, called su- system justification theory. And the idea of system justification is that it um, is that it's the process that we use to say, well, if this is what the system is, it must be good. If this is how things are, it must be good. And the reason that's attractive is because no one wants to live in a system that's not good, right? No one wants to live in a social order that is morally bankrupt, that is exploitative, that's oppressive, that's unjust. And so instead of acknowledging that the system that we live in might be really harmful and and not um not a not a good thing we justify to ourselves well if this is the way it is then that must be good and if this is the way it is and that's good then i need to change myself to be justified within that system um so john joss who is the uh, sort of the the father of this theory writes research inspired by system justification theory suggests that people are motivated not necessarily at a conscious level of awareness to defend bolster and justify existing social economic and political institutions and arrangements because doing so serves fundamental psychological needs right we desperately want to be part of a community. We want to feel like we belong to our group and part of how our community and how our group functions when we look at a uh, sort of a social level is through this narrative of meritocracy, through this narrative of hierarchy um, and that the haves are justified and the have-nots are also justified in having not, right? Um, And so it's tapping into this need that we have in our brains. And that's why, you know, so often when I'm talking to people about work, um, when I'm talking to people about, you know, like on the podcasting side of things, when I'm talking to podcasters about the content that they're making or the questions that they're asking people, they're repeating this social or system justification, even though consciously and intellectually, they actually believe something different, right? And so because system justification is often unconscious or internalized, we have a hard time noticing when we're actually um, doing things that are at odds with what we proclaim to believe, um, so again, you know, we can think about the system as being broken, the system being harmful and oppressive, and yet we can be uh, conducting ourselves in ways or doing our work in ways that perpetuates that system simply because we are trying to justify and meet the psychological need for belonging and um, you know moral upstandingness. Any questions about that? Questions so far? No? Good. 
great. Um, so this is part of a, a larger theory of justification. There's self-justification and group justification as well. Um, and so the same kind of mechanism applies here. So if in system justification, our psychological need is for the system that we're a part of to be morally good, to be a positive thing, the same thing is happening with group and self-justification. So group justification is finding ways to feel good about the groups that we belong to. Self-justification is finding ways to feel good about who we are and how we're showing up. And if I am this way, then it must be okay. The problem, though, is that system justification can be at odds with group and self-justification, especially when it comes to people from non-dominant groups or with people with identities that intersect with non-dominant culture. Um, and so this can create actual personal harm, right? So this is this quote is from the same book, but the idea here, um, the bolded areas is the most important part. System justification. So I uh, justifying to myself that the system is good because it's what is, is associated with lower self-esteem, less favoritism of their own group, and poor long-term psychological well-being measured in terms of depression, anxiety, neuroticism, ambivalence, and stigma internalization. And I think Lots of us, to one degree or another, especially as a group of women, um, we can identify with this, right? Like, how, in what ways have we all justified uh, misogynist or sexist behavior, for instance? And how have we changed ourselves, especially in a work context, to justify? that system to be to be justified within that system and what kind of burdens what kind of harm has that created in our lives i mean for me certainly depression anxiety and neuroticism uh ambivalence i don't have too much of a problem with um, but but definitely those first three um it's a it is a major major issue. And again, it's something that um, I'm sure you see with yourself, but it's also something that I'm sure comes up with clients as well. When folks are coming from groups or identities that are not part of the sort of larger patriarchal white supremacist culture, um, we figure out ways to belong to that culture to survive, to justify ourselves, to meet that psychological need. And that can create a lot of internal strife that is real and material. It's not just, you know, in not just, it's not only the way we talk to ourselves. It's not only political beliefs. It's all of that and real physical material consequences. Um, so I think this idea of system justification is really important in thinking through like, why do we keep believing this? <laughs> like, why does this keep coming up daily or weekly or monthly, even for those of us who spend a lot of time thinking about this, as in me? Um, wh why is this so sticky? And I think the system justification theory is really uh, helpful with that. 
So um, let's take a quick pause here. And I want to think about what does justifying meritocracy as a social system actually sound like? What does justifying meritocracy as a social system sound like? So what are the things that we say or what are the actions that we take that uh, are in one way or another trying to justify this uh, meritocratic social order to ourselves and those around us or those we love? So let me give you a couple of things that came up real quick for me, and then I want to give you a couple of minutes to jot down what uh, this justification process might sound like to you. So meritocracy justification might sound like, if I worked harder, I'd be more successful, or I worked hard for this job and my salary, I don't see why others shouldn't have to do the same, or If I were smarter and maybe more dedicated, they wouldn't see my disability anymore. So those are three ways that we commonly hear meritocracy justified in our heads (laughs) when we're talking with clients or with team members, um, and then also in the media as well. So I want to give you a couple of minutes. Let's... uh, oh. Excellent. I've got one o'clock on the nose. So let's do, um, let's take three minutes and just jot down as many phrases or common things that you hear, common things you tell yourself that serve to justify meritocracy as a social system. And then when those three minutes are up, I'll give you an opportunity to share either in the chat or uh, aloud as you'd like.
All right. What does justifying meritocracy sound like to you? What does justifying meritocracy sound like to you? Rachel? Yeah, I'm, I was just thinking of it. So as a business owner, like where I see it a lot, and I may not be answering this in the right way, but there's no right way where I, okay. <laughs> it's like the whole background check system. So like when it comes to work and, um, you know, it's just, it's so prevalent. Most of it is complete and utter BS. Um, and yet it's a whole cottage industry around background checks. Um, the other one I noted down was um, in the insurance industry, insurance premiums are better for people with a lower BMI, which again is not actually factual <laughs> from a health standpoint. And another kind of utter thing that, you know, has just been carried forward with no one questioning it. And then also credit scores as a way of defining responsibility. So as an immigrant coming to this country and I had no credit score in the U S and I was turned away from a lot of things, even though, you know, I, uh, had done a good job in Canada and it was like, I, I did a good job, you know, but I came to another country and I wasn't looked at, I was looked at differently. So those are just three examples that I thought of in like day-to-day life. Credit score is such a good example. Uh, and I will, I'll tell you, I had a conversation with my mother uh, a couple of months back where she was Complaining about um, some Biden administration mortgage program, which you know, that's a whole longer story. But she said something to the effect of like, I don't see why the good people who have higher credit scores should dot, dot, dot. And I was like, Mom, I want you to hear what you just said. You do not mean that people with low credit scores are bad people, but that's literally what you just said. And it took her a while to come to terms with that, but she did. Uh, like I said, there's a lot of, there's a much longer story <laughs> there. Um, I've always said that my mother made me a bleeding heart liberal, but um, she is not one. So <laughs> she taught me how to be a bleeding heart liberal, but she is not one. Anyhow, uh, yeah, credit. Oh my God, credit scores. We could spend a whole session just talking about credit scores and their relationship to work <laughs> and and self identity and all of that stuff. That's such a great example. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, let's see. Nyla said everyone has to put their time in. Just be patient. Keep your head down and your work up. Yes, right. Ugh. Uh, and the generational piece of that too, right? Like right now, we're seeing that. Uh, you know people talking about how Gen Z doesn't want to have to put their time in. Well, 20 years ago, it was millennials don't want to put their time in. I'm sure 20 years before that, it was Gen X doesn't want to put their time in. And guess what? 20 years before that, it was boomers don't want to put their time in. It's a, it is a constant cycle of one generation being morally superior to the next generation on top of um, sort of the more individual or, or group pieces as well. Um yeah, Susan, uh, we, my mother and I also had a conversation about this. Uh, the <laughs> We can't pay off student debt because it rewards people who aren't deserving. Uh, she also added, um, it sounds like most people will quit. If you don't quit, you if you outwork, outlast them, you'll be successful. Yeah, that's a pernicious one. 
Uh, yes, we should also spend a whole session talking about the BMI. That would be fun. Uh, <laughs> we could just listen to maintenance phase together and it would be delightful. <laughs> um, Ellen say, says, thinking online business owners are successful on merit alone, skill, talent, hustle, as opposed to their appearances. Yes, appearances and also networks and also existing wealth, right? And so whether that's financial wealth or it's um, network wealth, um, you know, social capital. These are things that people just don't consider, and it destroys people, right? It destroys people's confidence. It destroys their self-efficacy. It destroys, um, it destroys their dreams. Like it's just so. Oh God! If uh, don't get me started on that one, or do you know it's fine, um, Julie? Well, I, I'm, I'm just realized why I'm so interested in listening to these podcasts that are kind of deconstructing online business and critiquing it. And at first, I was like, oh, it's just because it's like a little bit um, gossipy in a way. But I'm realizing it's actually like it's like soothing for me to listen to how much bullshit there is um that's that's like trotted out as fact and in which centers around anybody can do this essentially without paying attention to anything like privilege or access or anything and so when as i i had this aha i'm like oh this is kind of like deconditioning me from beliefs i have about myself that i couldn't pack it you know Mm. that i you know and it's so and like I had relative success doing it. Like when I look at really at the big picture, like I did okay, you know. And it's like I'm just like starting to feel that as I see how many, like just how many lies there are. Of, yeah. So. Just, yeah, I think I think maybe something important to unpack there too is that. And I think you probably all already know this, but it, it's worth being said that pointing out that someone is extra s- successful because they had an existing network, because they had existing wealth to bootstrap their business with, because you know all of these things, it doesn't make their success, uh, it doesn't call their success into question or it shouldn't. It's simply acknowledging context. And you all know I love context. Um, and and it gives us an opportunity to say, it's not me. It's that they had something more than I had. And what I've done with what I have is incredible, right? And even if it wasn't, that would also be fine. But I think, you know, when we start talking about dismantling the myth of meritocracy, it can be very confronting to people who are on top. And it's also very tempting to think that the people who are on top are bad people or that they've done something bad to get there. But that's not necessarily true, right? I'm not saying it doesn't happen, Um, but it's not necessarily true. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. Jamie, did you were you on mute? Yeah, I I'm I think this is more of a question because I don't know the answer myself off the top of my head, but I'm curious how performance reviews fit into this. Mm. Um, something I've been thinking about lately. Um, 
because only because I've been copy editing one of my clients' performance review guides and keep thinking, I'm so glad I don't have to do this because it seems really burdensome. But um, I have been, I, the internal conversation I've been having with myself is that having a very structured um, performance review process um, is better for, as opposed to like a more wishy-washy one because everyone goes through the same process and, um, you know, it evens out disparities potentially in, you know, people who are extroverts versus introverts communicating that you can, you all have your process where you sit down and write like, here are my goals and here is how I've been doing and you get reviewed and you get your raise or you don't. Just this moment thinking about it though, I was like, is that true though? I mean, does it really, or does it really account for those existing inequities or differing abilities or whatever? Um, so this is a very non- it's not a fully formed thought. I guess my, I'm just curious, like what y'all's reaction is to how a, a performance review system as we see it often, especially in larger organizations fits into justifying meritocracy as a social system. I'm, I'm not sure what. I love that. Reaction, I, please. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And as you were saying that, it reminds me of my days when I was in talent management and we would use the nine box to try to like map potential, which is another one of those to me, very like icky spaces that starts to feel like potential looks and smells a particular way. And we can tell from afar what potential looks like based on a set of behaviors that favors certain types of people with certain types of backgrounds, with certain types Mm -hmm. of networks. So I think that's really profound. I think all that stuff kind of you know, we could, I think we tell ourselves it's, it's a system, therefore it's fair. Mm-hmm. Right. But the system is based on a ton of assumptions and a ton of biases. So the, I think that's, the, and I right. think the hardest thing to reconcile with for me in this very moment is like anyone who's ever spent some time in HR is like justifying this as a process that feels explicit and public forgetting that it is based on a bunch of beliefs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. I, when you were talking about that, it, um, so I was in the air force for a very long time and have been through, I think now three different versions of the performance review process on both the officer and the enlisted side. And they're very structured and they're very clear and it's very systematized and very public and um but it's very closely related or at least it's supposed to be closely related to people getting promoted so your scores on your um performance review determine whether or not you're eligible for promotion and what has happened over like the last 20 years is they come out with a system and it's super clear and everybody follows the system for a while and then the supervisors start ranking everybody higher because they want to do what's best for the people that work for them. They want their, you know, they want their people to get promoted. They want to take care of the people. So they'll start in. Inf- 
plating the scores and eventually then everybody's a five out of one to five everybody's a five and then the air force is like hey everybody can't be a five you have to re you, you have to you know you can only have five you know five of your people can be fives and then so they start trying to enforce people rating people lower and then they release a new system that's still very systemized and clear and um and the same thing has happened at least three times in the 20 years I've been dealing with Air Force um, performance ratings. And so I think even if you're like super clear and super committed to it, there's still an element of the supervisor is the person who's making that determination and they want to take care of their top performers. And maybe they have somebody that they have a personality conflict with. And so they're going to rate them lower. And so I think even if you have a really explicit specific system about how you rate people based on whatever your performance metric is i think it's always there's always the element of like people and their biases and um how they approach being a supervisor that i think you just i don't i don't think there's a way to create a performance system that would inherently that would manage to like uh, adjust for that i just I, I would love to think that there was, but um, yeah, in in large organizations, I've never seen anybody, despite how how transparent and how spe specific and metric based, and um, I just think you can't account for the people element. Rachel, Julie, Rachel. Oh, a little piece that comes to me, um, I'm realizing I don't have my headset on. Can you hear me okay? Mm -hmm. um, well, just with re reward in general, like I think about my kid and how ingrained, I think she's like naturally competitive too, but it's ingrained in her, like that winning stuff and being the best at stuff. And then and there's like this whole backlash of like not giving kids so many awards and not doing all this approval stuff. And then I, I have to believe there's like some somewhere in between where there's a healthy desire to like do better and to create skill and you know and I like I examine that myself like when am I doing this for achievement versus when am I doing this because I just really want to do better at it I'm, I think about that with my kid a lot like how do I cult, you know how do I cultivate that in, in her I think about that a lot with my kid too uh, <laughs> Rachel yeah same as a mother of a teen daughter. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, and I wrote it in the chat, but the whole performance management performance review, again, like I was in corporate life for 20 years before starting my own thing. And everyone hated it. Like everyone hated it. And yet it was still this thing that we had to go through. And as a group manager, I was told like, you could only have five people that are really good. I'm like, it just so anyway, just calling BS on performance management. Yeah, I so I have a bunch of thoughts on this. The first one is that I do think that leaving room for any kind of assumptions automatically invites bias. Um, I was just working on a podcast episode where I'm kind of thinking around belonging and imperialism and colonialism and um it includes part of an interview with my friend Charlie Gilkey. And one of the things he says 
is that um, systems are enduring and self-correcting, which means given any leeway, a system will always go back in the direction it started, right? So if, if there's if there's lag in the system, if there's leeway in the system, the assumptions, the, you know, the sexist assumptions, the racist assumptions, the whatever assumptions are going to fill that gap and bring the system back toward a less equitable um, system, a less equitable framework. So there's one piece there. Um, And to Susan's point, making things more specific is good and it's not necessarily solving the problem. Um, and to that point, it made me think about um, the work of a philosopher named C.T. Nguyen. Um, and I, I talk about this a little bit in my book. I've talked about it in, in different podcast episodes and blog posts, but he has this idea um, around sort of gamification and this idea he calls value capture. And essentially, value capture is this notion that whenever we start quantifying something, when we substitute a quantified or a quote-unquote objective measure for something that's nuanced and contextual and some, you know, multi-layered, that when we substitute something flatter for that, that we learn uh, to game that flatter value instead of uh, relating to the fuzzier, more contextual, more nuanced value that we were trying to measure in the first place, right? And so that flattening ends up with the gaming of the system, like Susan was talking about. And, and you know, Rachel, to your point too, around like, you've got to have this many people in this category, and this many people in this category. It's very similar, right? It's that idea that we can develop a quantification scheme that is going to combat bias, that's going to allow us to only promote the right people, right? And then the last thing is that underlying all of this, it seems to me that we need systems and processes for feedback and for helping people get better at their jobs and for learning better how to work with each other and uh, learning better uh, how someone can contribute to the goals of an organization or the goals of our businesses, if, if that's what it is. And that when we tie that feedback process to financial reward or recognition to status, we're always going to bump up against these problems. And that perhaps uh, the only way to start dismantling that meritocratic mindset at work is to separate feedback from pay and status. Um, And you know, that is really confronting, you know, especially like if we're talking about corporate work or we're talking about um, even a small business, the idea that some people deserve to get paid more than other people, either by virtue of their title or by virtue of their performance is just like, that's just like, that's how it is, right? Like, that's how it's supposed to be. But why? Why is it that way? Why does one person make more money than another person. Do they deserve that money more? 
does their work contribute that much more value? Right. We're seeing that with uh, the labor movement this summer. Right. Why is it that CEOs can continue to get pay raises, but workers on the ground are still getting paid what they got paid 10 years ago, which is actually less than it was 10 years ago? Right. So that's hard. And there is no easy way to be like, oh, yeah, let's just separate performance reviews and compensation from uh you know from this system there's there is no easy way to do that but i think that's the kind of assumption that we need to examine when it comes to meritocratic structures with work well i don't want to miss a chat uh okay so all that being said, let's uh, let's keep going. We're going to wrap up this section here in just a second, and then we're going to move into immunity to change, which is one of my favorite things to talk about. <laughs> so um, as I kind of mentioned earlier, social justification becomes really a moral framework. We want the status quo. We want the existing system. We want the existing social order to be seen as good, as right, as proper, even if we don't benefit it. And from there, we learn to see behavior um, that the status quo deems good as morally positive, while bad behavior is immoral. So then what happens when that so-called bad behavior is the be exact behavior that we want to cultivate? Things like honoring rest, care, equity, sustainability, community. Those aren't values or behaviors or ways of, of being and showing up in the world that lift you up the meritocratic uh, hierarchy, right? Those are things that push you down or have consequences um, that will push you down, that moral hierarchy. And that's when why change becomes so difficult, right? We can say, well, oh man, I really wish I could work less or I really wish I could prioritize rest more. And maybe we set that goal. And then what do we do? Well, we don't do it, right? We go back in a week or tomorrow to working our asses off because prioritizing rest is in direct opposition to our commitment to the meritocratic order as it is. It is in direct opposition to this moral uh, hierarchy, this moral framework that we have been conditioned to be part of since we were tiny, tiny children. Um, and so that's really then what the immunity to change framework is designed to unpack. Um now, I use this as a way of really getting to that social justification quality so that we can really understand the root of this. Um, and so mine is a bit of an, uh, an adaptation of the original framework, but the original framework was uh, designed by a psychologist named Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy, who is uh, an educational psychologist, I believe. Um, 
And basically, it's a, it's a way of uncovering the competing, competing commitments and assumptions that make change really hard. And so their framework happens in four parts, and I'm proposing we add a fifth part to really get at that social social justification piece. So let me walk you through this. Then I'm going to give you an opportunity to do it for yourself. So for a behavior or a change or a habit that you're looking to add to your life, to take away from your life, to change in some way. Um, and then we'll do it as a group as well. Okay. So I'll be looking for a volunteer to play with me with the, the immunity to change framework. So the first part, the first thing that we identify is the desired change. What is the commitment that you say that you want? What do you say you want to be committed to? Second, what are you doing or not doing instead of the thing you say you want, right? What are the behaviors that are counter the commitment and desired change that you want to make? That's the second piece. So you start with saying, all right, this is what I said I wanted to do. And then you say, yeah, but really I'm doing this thing. And then third, um, why are you doing those things? And when we start to answer why, the hidden reasons that produce the unwanted behavior and make follow through on the commitment difficult, we start to get to the competing commitments. These are things that we're afraid of, right? Well, if I take my vacation time, someone else is going to get the, the promotion. If I leave Instagram, someone else is going to take all my followers or take all my customers. If I um if I ask for a raise, someone else is going to work harder than me for less money and my job will be in jeopardy, right? Those are the sort of fears and worries that uh make it hard for us to do something different than what we're currently doing. And then underneath those reasons, underneath those fears and worries is some sort of big assumption. And there are the beliefs or fears that justify those competing commitments. So let's just stick with rest because rest is something I think we're probably all familiar with needing more of. Um, so if my commitment is to, let's say, work four days a week instead of five days a week, to, to pare my work down to 32 hours instead of 48 hours. Um, what am I not, what am I doing instead? Well, I'm probably still working 40 hours a week, right? Or I'm still saying yes to things that don't fit into my 32 hour framework, or I'm uh, rushing to get all my work squeezed into that 32-hour time frame instead of working at the pace, uh, at a more sustainable pace, right? So those are all things that I would write down in the second category. And then what are the reasons for that? Well, I named a few, right? Um, if I don't say yes to these projects, well, then they're going to go someplace else. They're going to find a different provider. I'm going to lose out on that revenue. If I don't show up on social media on the, on my fifth day of work, well, somebody else is going to get more attention than I do. And so the competing, competing commitment, if my existing or if my desired commitment is working four days instead of five, my competing commitment is that I believe 
it five days of work is the baseline for some level of success, right? And if I don't reprogram that belief, then I can never change to a four-day work week. That probably seems obvious, but that kind of calculus is the kind of calculus that we don't often do. Um, and it's the kind of thing that we need to be working through with, with coaching clients or with team members as well. Um, so if the competing commitment is that, no, my work actually takes five hours or five days a week, and I can't do it in four days a week, uh, or I'll be less successful, what's the big assumption there? Well, the big assumption is that um, working more time equals more success. Working more time equals more money. Working more time or showing up more often equals more attention, right? So there's, there's sort of that big assumption there that even if I convinced myself that um, I don't need to work five days a week, that big assumption is still going to nag at me all the time, right? And then we get to this fifth layer, which is the social justification. What are the social, cultural, or political status quo that lends to the credence to my big assumptions, right? Well, here, I know that the 80-hour work week is this mythic, you know, mythic narrative within Silicon Valley, for instance, right? You can sleep when you die. And there, so there's this cultural status quo. There's this cultural narrative that says more work is better. More work makes you more successful. Um, in this case, it's directly uh, echoing those assumptions that I have. Um, and so that's how I'm I'm justifying this to myself. Well, if they're working 80 hours a week, then certainly I can work 40, right? Like that, I shouldn't want to work less than that. And so I'm justifying, you know, I'm, uh, you know, maybe I'm not uh, working as hard as the people on the top of the pyramid, but I need to work a certain level of uh, a certain number of hours in order to justify my position in the system. Okay, so that's the immunity to change framework. It walks you down or it breaks down from the change that you want to see through to the things that you're actually doing instead of that thing, to why you're doing those things instead of the thing you want to be doing, to the assumption or the story that's underneath of that, and then finally digging into like what is the social context, the social justification for why you believe what you believe. Questions before you give it a try. I think it will make more sense and feel more real once you give it a try, but any questions to start? Okay, cool. So let's do uh let's do four minutes. Pick something maybe easy for yourself. <laughs> this is just practice. And think about um whether or not you would like to walk through it with the group then as well. So um yeah, I'll give you four minutes. Give it a go.
Um, we're going to start wrapping up and move toward uh, doing this in public. But first, Julie says, can this model be applied to an organization or is it an individual process only? Um, I think it could definitely be applied to an organization. I think that um, to be actionable, and uh, able to be executed, it's going to have to get broken down further, but it would be good for thinking through like what existing systems are making this institutional change or organizational change harder. Oh, Nyla says they have a version of the tool for teams and orgs. The website for immunity to change um, is excellent. They have lots of tools and resources. So if if this is an interesting tool to you, I highly recommend heading over there and uh, exploring it more. Um, I wanted to kind of use it as a way of showcasing how we can go from something specific and like frustrating <laughs> to better understanding why that thing exists. Um, okay. Do I have a volunteer who would like to do walk through... Oh, Susan. Excellent. Um, I am going to stop this and pull up my whiteboard. Okay. Susan, hi. Hi. <laughs> Tell us about uh, your desired change, your commit. What are you trying to commit to? So the thing I have been trying to commit to for the last several weeks um, is to spend more time on uh, all the creative projects I want to do that I haven't started on. Okay. So that's that are easy. all just ideas. <laughs> Excellent. What have you been doing? Ideas. <laughs> what have you been doing instead? Um, my day job. Uh, I have been solo parenting for the last several uh, months. Okay. Uh, I have been attempting to rest. Uh, I have been going to a bunch of medical appointments to try and get a diagnosis for a chronic illness I've had for three years. Uh, yeah. Oh, taking care of the house because we just moved. Right. <laughs> um, when you do have time for other work or do you have other time for other work? And if so, um, what are you doing with that time instead of moving forward on the creative projects? So yes, I do have time. Um, and I am aware that I have time. It is definitely, um, I have been blocking off time. So part mm -hmm. of, um, moving is we changed time zones and my kids school schedule changed um and i went from having another co-parent here to temporarily doing it by myself um but there's still time like my day job still only takes up probably half of the day every day um, the kids actually in school so i will say the thing that i am doing uh, like the biggest thing that comes up is resting like it's a direct 
competition with how much am I resting and what am I doing that is actually restful. Um, so most of the time I am zoning out on TV mm. or um, on my phone or um, yeah, those are those are probably the two biggest like the time okay. is actually there. Like it seems like I'm really busy um, and I am legitimately busy. But I could find time and I consistently am blocking it off and then not doing it. Okay. Like I'm doing other things during that time. Like it's blocked off on my calendar. <laughs> but then I'm not doing it. Yeah. And so during the, just so I understand, during the time that you have blocked off on your calendar for this work, that's when you find yourself kind of scrolling on your phone, watching TV, zoning out. Um, no. I am blocking it off during the workday and I'm doing anything else. I'm doing day job stuff that doesn't have to be done. Okay. I am uh, screwing around on LinkedIn. I'm finding another project to pick up. Uh, um, I'm not like there is time. I'm just uh -huh. not doing the thing that I'm supposed to be doing when I'm supposed to be doing it. Okay. So I wanted to get to like that piece because I don't begrudge anyone they're zoning out on TV or phone time. <laughs> like, well, that's all like, I, but I mostly have that contained to not during the workday. Got it. Um, like I have, I've pretty outside of LinkedIn, which I justify via it's important to connect and be visible and I can mm -hmm. get clients that way and yada, yada, yada. Um, outside of that, I'm usually pretty good about not doing it during the workday unless it's something where like Tuesday afternoons, I try to take the afternoon off and specifically go fuck off. Yeah. Um, but yes, during the time that I am blocked off, uh, either somebody, you know, there's a work crisis or I can't get my brain to engage in the thing that I want to do. Got it. When I'm supposed to do it. Um, so what, what are you worried about or what is the, what do you say to yourself in that time when you are choosing or allowing oh, you the, just heard it. what? Oh, you go just ahead. Heard it. I, can't, I can't get my brain to engage in the creative project that I want it to be. Um, because I don't have enough white space to let my brain marinate. Um, so I have uh, ideas that I cannot get my brain to like engage in that thought. Um, so if I'm sitting there and I'm not doing anything, but I'm not doing the creative thing, that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's um, something came up at the day job that I have to go respond to, even though it's not really urgent. Um, but if I don't respond, then people will think I'm not working and um, that I'm not valuable to the organization. And then I'll get fired because I'm a millennial. So Is I assume that, true? Okay. that I'll get fired. No, I won't get fired. <laughs> so I will fully admit here that doing this with folks like you all who are you know, at least a few degrees more self-aware. I this run stuff. the company, basically. <laughs> if my boss fired me, he'd have to do my job. And he's not going to do that. 
So no, I'm not going to get fired. Nobody's going to get mad at me. It is entirely self-policing. Yeah. So I'm I'm really interested in sort of getting to the root of I can't get my brain to engage in the creative project because I don't have the white space. What what are you doing to get your brain engaged? Like are you allowing Nothing. Okay. <laughs> And what are you afraid will happen if you were to just sit at a bl- in front of a blank screen for an hour? I will sit in front of a blank screen for an hour. And what's wrong I'll with just, that? I'll just stare at the cursor. Um, n- nothing except it feels like... So part of the issue I'm struggling with is that creatively up to this point, the only way I've been able to get like creative stuff to happen is via the podcast. I don't Mm -hmm. have the podcast now and I am struggling with being able to process things creatively on my own Mm -hmm. without, without a collaborator Mm -hmm. and that is coupled with, um, I've had a really hard time um, reading for like the last three years. Um, so I'm having a hard time getting inspiration and then turning that inspiration into something coherent. And instead of starting it and doing any of the things that might, like I actually think the issue is not the time or finding the time it's earlier in the process of um trying to create creatively Mm -hmm. without any of the things that stimulate my Mm. creativity like i feel like i'm just sitting down and i don't have anything to um trigger interesting new thoughts or interesting new interpretations or um Okay. That kind of thing. And so, so what I like I can find the time to sit down and then I sit down and I'm like I I don't have yeah. anything interesting to say. Wonderful. So, it sounds like the assumption here is creative work is productive work. Creative work equals making something. Uh yes. That yeah. is an assumption. And And that if I don't make something from that creative work, that it's not a valuable use of my time. Right. And so you're trying to fit in the inspiration work, because that's work, into time that you don't have blocked as creative work. But that's the time in which you need to be zoning out. Mm -hmm. So the creative work includes the inspiration work and instead of sitting in front of a blank screen for an hour you could read a book yeah or listen to a podcast or listen to a podcast or talk to a friend so that i think i think that's the part so recently i have come out of two years of hibernation Mm -hmm. um, and have started now having conversations with people again which sounds weird but i was really hardcore hibernating burnt out 
brain wouldn't work, brain fog, all kinds of stuff. Um, and now I'm, I am starting to have conversations with people and they are starting to do the inspiration piece. Um, not to the point where I feel like I could produce something with them, but at least to the point where during that time I am managing to at least be thinking about the thing I'm supposed to be thinking about instead of, um, I think getting afraid that if I spend time thinking about stuff and the stuff I'm thinking about or producing is really shitty, um, or that it will be shitty maybe, uh, trying to get past that it always has to be good part and just through the start doing it part. And it's also the, like what we talked about before where, uh, like if I, I have to outwork people and outlast them in order to be successful. And I recognize that in order to do that, I have to be consistent. And in order to be consistent, I have to build systems that allow me to do consistent work in a sustainable manner and then i get stuck at the beginning of that loop yep like that is that is the loop that happens in my head is in order to be consistent i have to have systems i have to figure out what the system would be and block it off on my calendar and i have gotten to that point but then i'm not using that I'm not using that time to then do the rest of the loop right and the reason that you're not using the time to do the rest of the loop is because there is a an underlying belief, assumption, justification that whatever you're doing has to result in a high quality product. Yeah, I have to have something. It can't just mean. And it has to be, be good. Mean. And it has to be good. Yeah. Like I don't want to put out shitty work. Right. But the problem with that, of course, is that the only way to you get to a good you have to do the shitty work, you have to do the to shitty do work. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you also have to do the work that doesn't make something in the first place, too. Yes. Like research, inspiration, sounding board. That's all part of the process, too. Right. Yeah, and all of the systems that I had prior to, really prior to the pandemic, to generate those are all things that I lost access to. Um, you know, I used to listen to podcasts while I was walking, and then I got really mm -hmm. sick, and I wasn't able to walk, so I didn't listen to podcasts, because I can't listen to podcasts and just sit there, because um, I start tuning it out. Well, yeah. um, and, like, I stopped being able to read books like I couldn't focus enough to read books and um, or like newsletters or other things and so yeah I'm trying to figure out what are the how do I do that now still not having access to some of those things um, but ending up with the same results yeah um, obviously if this was a real coaching conversation we'd talk about next steps and like all of those kinds of things um but i'm curious for those of you who are kind of watching like what observations do you have what questions do you have based on what we kind of just went through and um rachel well it, it kind of relates to what i had down which was like exercising daily Mm. Sure, I'm not the first person to have that. Um, but then I went all like full circle and I even put this because I I came up against that creative thing too, where like 
maybe my big assumption is that I need to exercise daily. Like, do I? Like, do I just need to move my body for 15 minutes? And like, um, I so related to what you were talking about, Susan, about the creative piece, obviously coming at it from different perspectives, but I had like um, uh, a sense that I, I wasn't good enough uh, to be around creative people because I didn't consider myself a creative. I didn't consider that my entrepreneurship path was creative enough. So I think from a, a big assumption standpoint, I'm kind of like really turning it on its head, like, like it, that it has to be 30 minutes of exercise that I do. And therefore I say, hmm, I don't have three 30 minutes today. So therefore I can't do it. So it's just very interesting. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Rachel, I think you're the point of like, is, is the, maybe the assumption is the thing that you think you want to do is really astute. And it also is just, it is very similar to what I was hearing um, with Susan's example too, which is like, there's an idea of what the right way to do this is. And um, if I don't have what I need to do this, the quote unquote right way, whether that's 30 minutes of exercise or producing an article or producing a podcast episode or whatever it might be, um, then I can't get started. I might as well do something else, right? I might as well dick around on LinkedIn. I might as well answer this email for my day job. I might as well get started with work instead of taking a 15-minute walk instead of a 30-minute walk, right? Um, and that all relates back to um, you know, uh Tima Oaken's uh white uh, supremacy culture characteristics, one right way, perfectionism, um, that piece, this idea that it's not, it's not good enough. It's not worthy. It's not, um, it's just not acceptable if it isn't done properly and done at the highest level of execution. Right. And because none of us have time to do that, like, on a day-to-day basis, we get stuck in that process of just kind of piddling around the edges instead of saying, you know what? Reading a book for 20 minutes on the, about this idea or listening to something for 20 minutes about this idea is better than not spending any time on this idea at all, right? And that, you know, obviously there's, there's even privilege um, kind of wrapped up in that, but you know, if if that is your reality, like if that's those are your options, um, I you know I I think that there's a great opportunity to just like let it be messy and um, let it be enough. Just whatever it is, if it's five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, whatever it is, it can be enough. Um, and we don't have to buy into that social cultural um, justification piece that tells us it's, it's morally bad. (laughs) It's morally wrong to not devote yourself to the whole project all at once. Um, Okay. We are just about up at time. Um, I'm good for the rest of the day. I don't want to spend too much extra time just to respect your time, but what questions do you have? Bye, Nyla. Questions, things you want to talk about more? I have a question. Yes, please. Um, 
and maybe I don't know. Um, so how do you? And maybe this is a question for you personally. I'm having a hard time phrasing it. Um, so being autistic, uh, the black and white thinking versus the one mm. right way to do things. Uh, there and there is a natural resistance to change. How do you think? like neurodiversity or different ways of thinking impact this immunity. I want to change things. I recognize that I'm changing things. I'm recognizing that my black and white thinking ties into the perfectionism and makes it extra, extra hard to kind of overcome those thoughts. Um, I guess I, I'm curious on your perspective on all of that. Yeah, that wasn't um, a fully formed question. That was no, a- that's okay. I love not fully <laughs> formed questions. Uh, I think for me, it's acknowledging when black and white thinking or like my or resistance to change or demand avoidance is a good thing, like when it's legitimately a strength of mine. And when it is uh, in some way in service of the status quo or existing systems or just harming me personally and trying to be conscious of that and intentionally interrogate that when I find myself bumping up against it. So like... Uh, I've been thinking a lot lately about the tendency of the autistic brain to be very justice-minded. Like there is a right and there is a wrong. (laughs) And God help you if you're on the wrong side, right? I will destroy you. (laughs) Um, Or at least I'll talk about destroying you. Um, And most of the time, I find that to be a strength. Uh, it, it can get to the point of excess and that's a problem. It can also get to the point of rumination and that's a problem. But most of the time, that's a strength. And I kind of let myself indulge in that. Um, the demand avoidance is sometimes positive, but often a problem. And that's something then that I have to say to myself, Is it does it really benefit me to avoid this demand. Is it worth my time and energy to push back and resist this thing that I really should like that someone else has told me I should do? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's like, yeah, you crossed a boundary and like I need to respect that boundary for myself. And then other times, most of the time, it's no, Terry, you can be a little more flexible and do that thing that Sean asked you to do or insisted three weeks ago that you needed to do and now is angry at you about. Um, so, yeah, I think that's kind of how I, I think about it is like, what is the source of the resistance? Is this something that I can leverage for my own benefit and for others' benefit 
or is this something that is causing unnecessary friction for me and others? Is it harming me or harming others? Um, and try and balance it that way. I don't know if that's helpful, but that's how I think about it. No, it is. That was helpful. Thank you. Okay. Any other questions about or or things you want to hear more about in terms of meritocracy, social justification theory, or system justification theory, uh, or immunity to change framework? I know we we tackled a lot today. I think one of my questions is kind of similar to Susan's in that when we're ourselves in that space of thinking about the black and white, you know, right and wrong answers, and we're trying to coach people through these things, I guess I'm wondering about the questions that I should be asking myself as a facilitator of these questions to make sure that I'm not leading them down. Yeah, I guess, yeah, this is clearly really unformed, but there's, there's always this balance of like how much I'm going to educate my clients about what we're talking about mm-hmm. versus just like leading them into the next question. And it seems like for this material specifically, there does need to be a component of education. Otherwise, we're, we're kind of becoming those self-help people that just are like, this is what you should question and believe because you trust me. So maybe that's an unanswerable question, but (laughs) I mean, it it probably is, but that doesn't mean uh, that there aren't constructive things that we could talk about it. Um, So one of the things that came to me is like, I think there might be a constructive difference or a productive difference between black and white thinking and all or nothing thinking. And I think maybe what we're really talking or what we've been talking about with Susan's example, um, with Rachel's example is all or nothing thinking. And that's something where like, if I'm in a coaching situation, I'm thinking about identifying that train of thought that someone might be in and then asking what's going to happen if you can't go all in. Or what's going to happen if you don't getting someone to articulate consequences or like their perceived consequences, I think is really powerful. And another thing that can be really powerful in a coaching conversation like that, too, is that sometimes there are real consequences, right? And acknowledging for someone, yeah, that could happen. Is like something that a lot of, well, that is, well, one, that is definitely not something that a self-help guru will say. So you can feel good about that. (laughs) Like we don't, it's not popular to say, yeah, you're right. You could fail or yeah, you're right. You could, you know, I don't know, not be able to pay rent that month. Um, But there's also like saying, okay, but like, what's the likelihood of these different consequences? And um, if those are things that you're worried about, why are you worried about them? You know, why are you worried about not being more visible? Why are you worried about telling this particular story or sharing this particular idea? 
um, what what's the like what is the underlying feeling piece there, and where does that come from? Like, what does that what does that feeling connect to for you? And just sort of getting underneath the surface of it, I think that there is a component of education around like, you know, when I hear you say this, it really makes me think about this uh, sort of culturally agreed upon idea that we have, right? It makes me think about this other, you know, this other narrative. And I think that simply getting people to voice the framework under their thinking is often enough because so much of the cultural and social and political justification of the what we believe in and the systems that we operate in is absurd when we start saying it out loud <laughs> right mm-hmm. like it just is um and when we can get people to come to that on their own just through the questions that we're asking um, or through the layers of this that we're picking apart, it becomes so liberating. And it also creates an opportunity for that educational piece too. Yeah. Does that help? For sure. Okay. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Anything else before we wrap up? Good. Okay. Next week, we are talking about managerialism surveillance and bullshit jobs it should be very fun and exciting (laughs) and definitely dovetails with everything we've talked about the last two weeks as well um in the meantime if you have any questions if you are um kind of stewing on all of this (laughs) stuff and you want to talk it out um you can find the clarity flow um thread and ask me in there or ask your uh, ask us in there um and uh otherwise i'll see you next week Thanks all. Bye. Bye.